As we prepare to hear the message, let's say together a prayer as we read from the word. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. Good morning, everybody. Welcome here to Skyview Church. Uh, thank you for coming out. It is good to see all of you. The Lord is good in every season of life. It doesn't matter whether it is a difficult season or a rewarding season, God is faithful. Our faith teaches us that Jesus is that cornerstone, that sure foundation. Boy, I need to know that sometimes, especially when life can be challenging. And I know that for each one of us, there are challenges that come, but we have this assurance that God is faithful. The scripture says, yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never Glory to his name. Are you, are you rejoicing this morning that God is faithful, that you can count on him, that you can rely on him? And this morning, I pray that his word would do exactly this for us. People respond to Jesus differently in the gospel of Matthew. The outcast or the marginalized, if you will, the people that wasn't on the inside of political or religious power, the ones who Matthew just previously described as tax collectors and prostitutes respond to him positively. 
His family, they a little more ambivalent, including John the Baptist, who at one point, they seem to be unsure of who he is. Uh, the ones who outward reject him, just outright reject him, are the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, when you study this particular book, you come to learn very quickly that there is a growing conflict, a growing tension between Jesus and Israel's established religious leaders. Part of the reason why they are getting annoyed with Jesus is because he comes and announces this kingdom of God, and it doesn't seem to make sense to them. They may have read uh, Old Testament scripture like Psalm 2 or Joel 2, and they saw a, a picture of a Messiah that was militaristic, uh, a, an image of a Savior that would come to redeem the people of God, the Israelites, the Jewish people, in such a way that they would restore who they are in the world and that they would together rule from Jerusalem. But instead, Jesus comes and his kingdom are for more than the Jew. It includes the Gentile. Jesus comes and, and he seems to make room for people that others feel uncomfortable within the religious situation they find themselves in. He, he seems to bring about a kingdom that challenges the perspectives, the anticipations, or the expectations that many had. But what puts Jesus on the cross is not just that he is a different Messiah to the expectations, it's that he rejects their temple religion. He rejects the way in which they have made their religion fruitless. In fact, there's this a story in Matthew's gospel, we all remember it, where Jesus kind of blows his lid. He loses it a little bit. He walks into the temple courts and there he sees the tables of the money changers and he flips and throws it all over the place and he condemns what is happening there saying, you have made this a den of robbers, this should be a house of prayer. Remember that? And then Matthew recounts for us that Jesus leaves and as he's walking with his disciples, he sees this fig tree that had leaves on it. It had all the indications that it was fruitful, but when you looked at the leaf itself or the tree itself, there was no fruit on it and Jesus curse the fig tree, and it dies. And what we see in Matthew is Jesus being very clear that what he has come to do is to restore a religion that would not only have the appearance of piety, but would have the substance of it. He came to restore a religion that would mean something to everyone. He came to bring about a way of life that was not just simply pretentious, but contained within it that which was life-giving. And so just like the fig, leaf, fig tree pretends to have what it does not, Jesus condemns the temple because it presents itself and the religion around it as something that is of God when in fact it had nothing to do with him. The reason that Jesus goes to the cross is because he rejects a religion that bears no fruit. God rejects a religion that is about a, a word without a deed, a, an acknowledgement without an obedience. God seems to be interested through Jesus Christ in a religion that produces something that is life-giving, if you will. And there seems to be nothing more appalling to Jesus himself than religion that parades itself as truly of God but has nothing to show for it. 
And so Jesus, responding to these religious leaders, tells them a parable. And in this parable, he's really calling Israel back to repentance. Now, I love the way that Jesus tells stories because, uh, you know, you're, you're tracking along with him and you kind of go, I get it, I like it, sounds good, get them. <laughs> and then you find out that perhaps the get them is you or me. Jesus has this wonderful way of, of, of putting into words what would have made sense for the people of that time. And he tells a story of a landowner that goes through an inordinate amount of preparation and expense to himself to prepare a vineyard that could thrive. He builds a watchtower, he, he digs the wine press, he puts a fence around it, and then he goes and says, will you come and work for me? Now, when you understand that Jesus is really here speaking about Israel's resistance to him, you start to understand that Jesus is saying something to their religious leaders about the kind of religion that produces nothing. Jesus is teaching them to hear that God himself is coming to them with this request that they would give to God what is rightfully him, that they would become fruitful people of God. And so Jesus, in his wonderful way of telling the story, says that the landowner rents the land to these tenants and then he goes away to a far-off country. And there's this this really, really kind of neat little background here that, that in the time of Jesus, it would not have been uncommon for perhaps even some of the religious leaders to own land away from Jerusalem. They would have understood what Jesus was saying. Yeah, if I have to go to Jerusalem or I have to leave my land, I want to put it in the hands of those who can take care of it. And so they're tracking with Jesus. They're going, does this make sense? This is a good story. We know what the story is about. But then comes this significant part in the story. It's called the harvest time, the day of expectation. The day where the landowner had now sent his servants back to these tenants saying, remember the agreement we made is that you would work in my vineyard that I prepared for you. I have set you up for success. You can be fruitful and you can produce and you can keep some of the produce to live on, but there will be a day that I send my servants to come and collect from you what is rightfully mine. Now, it is at this point that everything still makes sense except for the response of the tenants. They refuse. In fact, they act violently. They stone the servants. They beat them up, and they kill them. And then the story goes on. The, the, the landowner must have heard that, uh, you know, by the absence of those who he sent, that these men were not ready to give to him what belongs to him. And so he sends more than the first uh, to ask him, to ask these men to give to the landowner what belongs to him. And they do exactly the same thing. Ah, it's like the landowner looks around and realizes, I have no servants left to send. He says, Israel, I have sent you prophet upon prophet. In fact, Israel, I sent you so many prophets, and John the Baptist is a prophet. You heard him call you to repentance, but you still refuse to listen. I have no one left to send except the Son. And hear this. Maybe when they see it's my Son... Luke looks like me. I'm rather proud of that. Maybe I should say I look like him. 
uh, we have the same dental hygienist. And uh, Luke had gone, and he had had his teeth cleaned, and it was my turn, and I went, and I sat down in the dentist chair, and she said to me, your son was just in here last week. I said, how did you know it's my son? She goes, he looks just like you. Uh, Miriam is saying he's better looking. That is true. But at least he looks enough like me for this person to say he looks just like you. And in this particular story, I find it so, so remarkable, so interesting, so important perhaps for us to recognize that when the son shows up, there is no mistaking that he is the son of the father. And the way they respond is to kill him and to throw him outside of the vineyard. This parable begins with a word that is translated in the vernacular from the original word Shema. The word Shema means to listen and to obey. It is a parable that contains some very harsh criticism for those who would not give back to God what is rightfully His or those who practice a religion that does not produce what God expects. But it is a parable of great invitation. A parable that says, Church of God, today would you hear and would you obey? Would you respond to the final word that according to Hebrews, did you know that the the author of Hebrews would put it this way? He would say, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But get this, but in the last days he spoke to us by his Son. You see, the Son is the last call. It's the final invitation. It's the last word. And how you respond to the Son will determine everything in your life. It is important that we understand that this is not God saying, you know, I've tried once and I've tried twice, but God has tried several times to restore His people and they have several times rejected. And here it is so beautifully put to us that He... He cares enough to give that final chance that he gives his very son. And how you and I respond to Jesus will make all the difference to the kind of life we live. This invitation is an invitation to fruitfulness. But it is also a call to repentance. And so I have three points. Can I get an amen, Ken? Ken is a preacher, he knows. Uh, The first one is simply this. Remember that God is the source of all you have. It strikes me uh, that what happens after the landowner goes and does all this stuff and provides it for the tenants and leaves for what must have been a considerable time as they listen to the story. I, I read somewhere it'd take about four years for a vineyard to start producing. So let's say it's four years of waiting. In those four years, something went wonky in those tenants' understanding of who owns everything. Something changed in their understanding of what they have been given, and they forget that it is the landowner that has provided everything they have. They act as if 
this is not the case, and they keep and hoard and refuse to give to the landowner what is rightfully his. Listen, there's, there's an atheistic perspective in our world that says this, there is no God, therefore I owe him nothing. There's a materialistic perspective in our world that says, I've accumulated all this stuff by my own hand, therefore it belongs to me. And then there's a Jesus perspective that goes like this, Everything I have has been given to me by a God who provided everything that I have so that I may be everything he calls me to. And when we live in this world as if it's by our own design that we are what we are or that there is no God for whom we ought to be accountable for, we will never be the people that God has called us to be. But when we look at the scripture, it is an invitation to repent from forgetting that God is the source of everything good in our lives. He is the one that has provided for Israel throughout time. He's the one that says prophet upon prophet, word upon word, and then at no say expense to himself, gives himself totally so that you and I may experience the grace that comes from knowing him and being his. He has given us everything we have. You know what is the indication of a Christian that gets that God is the source of their lives and the provider of everything they have? It is gratitude. It is gratitude. It is a people who respond with thanksgiving. It is a people who understand that they have been given everything by God. He has blessed us. My friends, count your blessings today and you will discern that God is good. This call to repentance is a call to remembering that God is the source of our provision. But it is also a call to return to God what he requires of us. I want to ask you a question that's personal and really important. What is the Lord requiring of you? What is the Lord requiring of you? There's this incredible chapter in Isaiah. It's the first chapter of the book of Isaiah. We see that the people have messed up. It seems like the people of God do that a lot. I think that's why we need Jesus. He's called a savior for a reason. <laughs> the people that messed up and they kind of lost their way a little bit. And, 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 and Isaiah captures for us this incredible experience in the life of the people because they are doubling up on all their religious practices. They are, they are, they, they are making sacrifices. They are giving offerings. <laughs> they, they, they are doing everything they can to kind of get right with God. But there is a sense in which their religious practices hides what God is actually after. And I want to read this text to you. And I, I want you to hear how the people want to give to God what he doesn't want. It's one of the most provocative and challenging text to read in the Old Testament. Here's what God says through the prophet Isaiah's vision. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. 
New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts, and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Judah and Jerusalem wants to give to God blood offerings. And God is saying, take care of those who I have given you charge of. There is a sense in which, like the people of God, we often want to give to God that which he is not requiring of us. And the question that I think is really important in the text is, what is it that God requires of you and me? The prophet Micah says it's to love justice and to show mercy and to walk humbly with our God. It is not simply for Israel to to bolster up their temple tax and do better religious services. It is to follow the calling of the Messiah into the world and to be a part of the kingdom work that he does. It is to be a people that are compelled by the love of God to share the grace of God with everyone they come into contact with. He has shown us, O church, what he requires of us. It is to love justice and mercy and to walk humbly with him. How are we doing? How are we doing? It is not in Isaiah as if God does not appreciate sacrifices. He instituted it. It is not as if he is saying these things don't matter, but he is saying this. Sometimes you use those things as an excuse and as a lesser thing than what I need from you. When you and I think about our lives in this country, in this current context, even amidst a pandemic, we are blessed. Amen. We have been given much. When pastors preach about giving back to God, the first thing most parishioners think is, he's asking for my checkbook. But you know, I I think, and I've said this to you before, that It might be at times that God is saying, give more, help those who don't have, dig deep, be sacrificial. This building would not be here without people who said, I'm going to go over and beyond tithing and I'm going to help build this building. There's times in which to give to God what is rightfully his is to recognize that all the finances we have ultimately is because of his care and provision for us. But there is also a great sense in which to give back to God is is to give all of who we are, not just parts of who we are. It is not simply to to live a Christian life that has one particular kind of focus, this is what it means to be Christian, but it is to recognize that the one who has given himself entirely to us asks for everything that we are. To give back to God is to not 
fit Christianity into my worldview. It is to have it become the way in which I think about life. It is to be totally in, completely devoted, all sold out. It is to say, your will be done and not my own will. It is to sing those songs and to live those truths. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. The Lord might be asking you for a particular thing. He might be asking you to give up something that you're really holding on to, that's keeping you from being fruitful. He might be saying to you today that there's certain things you do or certain things that you don't do that keeps you from returning to me that which I've invested in you. He may be saying to some of us today that there is something here that needs to be set free, to be broken. The chains need to come off so that you can live in the freedom that I've intended for you to do. But it also might be this, that God is calling his church to lay down their lives for him. And so I ask you, what is the Lord requiring of you? I I invite us to remember that God is the source of our provision, to return to God what He requires from us. But then I want to conclude with a final invitation to renew our walk with Him. At the end of Isaiah chapter 1, after that scathing rebuke through the voice of the prophet, this is the word that comes to the people. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. The God that rebukes a religion that means nothing is a God of tremendous grace and mercy and is able to restore and to renew our faith, our trust, and our hope in Him. I wonder this morning, as we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper, whether this invitation to remember that God has provided for us to return to Him what is rightfully His and to renew our walk with Him by laying before Him everything and anything that stands in the way of his lordship over our lives. In the hands of God, ordinary people's lives become profoundly powerful. History teaches us that. And history, biblical history teaches us this, that God seems to show a a preference for using ordinary people who have said In my strength, I can't, but if I give myself away, boy, watch out what he can do. Our world needs those who have laid down their life 
for Christ. Our world needs more than, it needs the right kind of religion. The one that listens well to the calling to not only say yes, but to live right. Is your life producing fruit today? Are there things coming out of you that speaks to the knowledge of who God is? Is he inviting us this morning to, as we participate in something that very much is something we've become accustomed to, but perhaps to participate in a way that says we want to remember well. We want to recognize that God is our provision. We, we want to recognize that in our lives there comes a season of harvest, a time in which God says, now, what did you do with those talents? How have you lived with what I've blessed you with? You know why I love the parable of the talents? Because it does this kind of five, three, two thing. And I think that's the right order. If it's not, you know what I mean. You know, it's easy to look at the little and say, I don't have like others have. But the point of that parable is whatever we've been given, whatever we have, are we using it for his glory? And so I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul who teaches his followers and those who follow Jesus to remember well. He says to them, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now hear this. Often being misused. I want you to hear this text. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and the blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves. And only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world." So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. I invite you to take the elements that you have received when you came into the sanctuary today. And before we receive these emblems as symbols of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to pray. To ask the Lord to search your heart and to renew your faith. Perhaps someone here needs to ask, Lord, forgive me for holding back that which is rightfully yours. Maybe someone here is saying, I, I, I feel so hungry for more than I've received 
in my own religious ways. I, I need a fresh anointing, a, a filling from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and these symbols, um, they seem so little, but they represent so much. The Son gave His life so that we may have life. And therefore, these symbols represent the source of our hope. I invite you now to eat and drink and give God thanks. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your provision. May we live as ones who know you and who love your world. In Jesus' name, amen.